Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, walking through verses 26 through 33. I'm feeling good about this morning, able to get through the entire passage uh, that we weren't able to get through last week. Uh, the amount of information is uh, rich because of who our God is, our great Savior. When you think about the subject matter that we're considering, the greatest announcement of the greatest event in the history of the world, uh, it pales in comparison to anything else we can know. And we're wading into this, uncovering the details of it. Now, if you ask the average person on the street, what is the greatest event in the history of the world? People might say something like the building of the pyramids. After all, they're still with us today. Some would say something like Stonehenge. How in the world did they get that rock on top of the other rock? A mystery. Must be aliens. That kind of conversation. Eventually, people would say something like the Great Wall of China. That was an amazing thing that happened. It's still around today. Others would probably say, what can beat the landing of a man on the moon? I mean, that's got to be the pinnacle of events in history. Well, For us as followers of Christ, the greatest event in the history, and it's not even close, is not so much a man on the moon as it's a God becoming man. That announcement is is breathtaking. You can't find anything else. Nothing even comes close. It's not even on the same scale. And that's what we're looking at today. And we're looking at it because we, like Luke, who's helping a friend named Theophilus, we want to be certain about what we believe. Nobody wants to believe a lie. So when Luke takes up the idea of, I'm going to document out the details of who Jesus Christ was, what are the related things to that, the interviews with people, to find what was happening at the time, what was the situation, who was involved, who were the witnesses, where was this taking place? That's the series that we're in, in the Gospel of Luke, because that's why Luke was written. Uh, Luke went back and had interviews with people. You could look at him almost as a reporter, getting to the bottom of a story. And the content that we have today is a discussion that happens between Mary and Gabriel. Be sure of this, is that Luke isn't making this up. Luke was writing this down as he heard it from Mary as he interviewed her, to find out what exactly took place. And so when you think of the details that we're going to discuss, this is also that you and I, who struggle to believe at times, so that we can believe better, we can be healthier in our faith. And those neighbors and coworkers and friends that you have that are far away from Jesus, you can with confidence say, I'd love for you to consider who Jesus Christ is. Because the greatest thing that ever happened is that God became a man so that we could be brought back to God. So that's where we're at. Last week we started our consideration of this, and you have it in your outline if you have a teaching guide. We started thinking about the mission of Gabriel in verses 26 through 28. He's an angel, and he's delivering the goods. He's communicating what needs to be known. And that's what this story is really about. Uh, When we think of what exactly is Gabriel talking about and when he's reporting to Mary what's going on and he's previously reported to Zechariah, he's 
giving what needs to be known. I think that's important. He's not just doing this off the top of his head. Think about this. The last time that there was an angelic visitor that's recorded on the planet was 500 years ago. The last time in which God's spirit moved in a prophet was over 400 years ago. So when an angel shows up and what you have before us, when he is telling the details that we're going to consider this morning, he's telling you what you need to know and nothing else. It's sufficient. So we looked at the mission of Gabriel last week. Then we considered the surprise of Mary in verse 29. And we thought of the fact that Mary, although many people think Mary is somehow a unique beacon, almost savior-like when they think of her. Uh, sometimes we think that uh, she was someone who deserved what she got when she trusted uh, in Christ her savior. The reality is that Mary needed a savior herself. And that's what it says in 146 and 47, when she magnifies the Lord because she rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's the, the surprise of Mary. So in our passage today, as we're going to read down through this, it's important for us to remember that all the things that are happening here is not because Mary is somehow better than, than all of us, that she somehow merits what she's got, but she has simply been chosen by the Lord to receive a message is profound. And so if you're over in Luke, we're going to walk through the rest of this passage. We're going to read everything we did last time, uh, except for we're going to start really in the message of Gabriel in verse 30. So look over there, verse 26, it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This morning we're going to start off considering the message of Gabriel. We're hip deep in it last time as we began to start, but we wanted to make sure that it's important that you understand is when he comes to her and says, do not be afraid in verse 30, Mary, you have found favor. As I said, it's not as if Mary somehow deserved this. Mary's not better than you. 
Mary's not somebody who qualified in some type of celestial stakes to be the person who bear the Messiah. Everybody had thought the Messiah would come. No one had worked out the details of exactly how that would happen. So you don't have people praying, let me be the one, let me be the one. I wish I could be the one. No one's doing that. And when the angel shows up and says effectively to Mary, you're the one. She receives this as a grace, and God has graced her with this. But never forget this. We know from John chapter 1, 16 and 17, that Jesus Christ is the truth, and he is full of grace. Grace upon grace. In other words, when you're thinking of grace, don't let anyone muscle in on the grace of Christ. Don't let anybody muscle in to say, well, Mary had a grace that she dispenses to people too. There's a tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, who believes that. It's very important that you understand that when they say, Hail Mary, mother full of grace, that it's muscling in on Christ. Mary never would have said that. Never ever would have said that. She was looking for a savior. She wasn't immaculately conceived, even in the encyclical by post Pope Pius the Ninth in December eighth, eighteen fifty four, doesn't erase the reality that Mary needed a savior, and she was given grace to function in her role. But her grace does not then display or flow to you or anyone else. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Now, when he gets into this and in verse thirty one, I would like you to consider there's five statements. Very, very important. The message of Gabriel has these five statements. I would like you to consider them, each of them, almost like a rock when it's thrown into a pond. I used to love throwing rocks into ponds. I think all boys do. And I remember the bigger the rock, the bigger the splash. And as you throw the rock in, the the waves ripple out all the way to the shore. I think that's what's happening in these verses. Matter of fact, in verses 31 through 33, it's not merely the metaphor of a rock. I actually think you see the life of Jesus Christ from the very beginning, through his existence humanly on this earth, his ministry, then all through eternity. I think we see five different waves, if you will, of the impact that Christ will have on humanity. Let's look at the first. It says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, in the Hebrew, this name would be Yeshua. If we translated that over into English, the word you get is Joshua. I think it's interesting. I've got no evidence for this, but I think it's interesting that if you brought that over, you'd have that name Joshua. And isn't it interesting that Joshua is the one that brought the people of Israel into the promised land? I find that there are threads throughout the story of Christ like that. There's images and impacts of different ideas of how Jesus Christ is running in the, the feet of Israel. Matter of fact, we see that very reality at the beginning of his ministry. Why is it that Jesus goes into the wilderness to endure temptation as soon as he's baptized? Because Jesus needs to succeed in a wilderness where Israel failed. 
And this idea that Jesus is going to be named Jesus or Yeshua, Joshua, I think it's a picture of that. So this first ripple, the baby being born in the manger that's going to come up, she is going to bear a son. You shall name his name Jesus. Now notice verse 32. This is really interesting. For he will be great. That word great is megas. Uh, you know the story. It's the idea of mega. Anything you put in front of it like a mega structure, or he's a mega player, or mega sports star. Anything mega has the idea of great, fantastic, spectacular. When she's, the angel says he will be great, he will be out of the ordinary, he will be remarkable, he will be spectacular. And what's fascinating is is that's exactly what you see Christ be. From the very moment in his ministry, when he goes public, look over in Luke chapter 4.31. Let's look at this. In Luke 4.31, Jesus finds himself teaching on the Sabbath in Capernaum in Galilee. And the people, it says, they were astonished. Ekpleso is the word there. In other words, They were astonished that their brains couldn't process what they were seeing in the teaching of Christ, what they were hearing in the words of Christ. They were absolutely astonished. They were overwhelmed. It's also a word that's used for being thrown off course. It's like they were walking down the road one day and they heard Jesus teaching and someone knocked them to the ground. It just startled them. They were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed Authority, says there in verse 32 of Luke 4. Authority. Exousia, that's the word in the Greek language. It has the idea of complete power, complete command over the situation, and complete control. In other words, as he's teaching, he's weaving his way in and out of the text in a way they've never heard it. The religious leaders would talk about the text. They would talk about what it's saying. But Jesus is just owning it. It's as if he gave the text. It's as if he's the owner. It's like somebody who, if you were ran into somebody who's made something, it's not merely somebody telling you about something that's been made, but the guy's saying, no, 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 I made it. This is how it functions. This is how it works. This is how things interact with that. He's, they're astonished at his authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of the unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So imagine this. I would love to be there. I would love to have been in this moment. Jesus is teaching, and there's a demon in the room. There's a demon in a room. Now, some of you may work with middle schoolers. At some point... (laughs) give you a little truth. Um, when I was in middle school, uh, I remember they used to invite me to this church and a lady told the people, I heard her say it. I think that kid's possessed. I wasn't, (laughs) I was just lost like crazy, but Jesus is in the room 
And this demon's in the back of the room, cries out. Can you imagine the scene? People are all hanging at it, listening to every word he says. And the demon, I can't stand it anymore. You've come for me, haven't you? Feels a bullseye on his forehead. Jesus rebukes him, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down to the, in the midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. They were all amazed. I mean, come on. What did you see today at church? I saw a demon come out of somebody. They said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This guy's mega. And notice, Mary's being told this. A long time before, some 30 years before this event happens, Gabriel's saying, he's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be spectacular. You know, he's never stopped being great and amazing and spectacular. Never has. If this morning you're here and uh, you've kind of glazed over in your walk with Christ, it's not because he's changed. It's because you've drifted away. I've always found interesting that James, when he talks about draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, it almost has the idea, if I do my part, he does his part, you know? Oh, that's a bad way to think about that text. It's as if this, God is here. And as you walk away from him, he gets farther away from you. But he never moved. But as you draw near to him, he draws near to you. Isn't that amazing? You know, Jesus has never stopped being mega. But maybe the reason why we've forgotten it is because there's other things that have enchanted us to believe they're more valuable. If you're struggling here this morning, let this be a word to you. Be encouraged. Draw close to him. He is spectacular. He's not ordinary. He is mind-bending. He is life-changing. More than that first ripple, Yeshua, he'll be great. Notice the second. Not only he'll be great, but he'll be called the son of the most high in verse 32. This is the message of, of Gabriel there. It's interesting that when you read that, called the son of the most high. Why son of the most high? You have to stop for a second, son of the most high, and ask yourself, why wouldn't he say, He'll be called the son of God. Now later he's called that. But why not here? Why not uh, son of the Lord? Uh, and, and have the idea of, of Yahweh. Why not the son of Yahweh? See, Yahweh was the name, the personal name of God for the people of Israel. It would seem to make sense, wouldn't it? That if you're going to take the most powerful pronounced personal name that God has connecting us with people, you'd use that name. But he doesn't. Now, close behind that, I think, would be Elohim. Again, translated God. Why wouldn't he say God? Elohim, because Elohim is the picture of the creative God. In Genesis, that's the primary designation of who God is. He is Elohim. He's the creator God. He takes nothing and makes something. It would seem like that would make sense, wouldn't it? But he uses this term, most high, or El Yon. You might be familiar with this. 
in the Old Testament, very often it's called El Elyon. El Yon has the idea of most high. El Elyon has the idea of God most high. Let me unpack this as to why I think this is the designation that the angel Gabriel is using. In the Old Testament, the paramount opposition that Jewish people have would have been the Canaanites. And they had a God by the name of El. And the God that they designated as the God that they looked to had derivatives, you could say. And you've heard of these people, people like uh, gods that they say like Baal and Amoth and Maud or the female goddess Astra. It's the idea that El is here and these others underneath are gods. They derive from El. And so in the Old Testament, it was really whose God do you follow? Do you follow Baal, who is the God of the earth? And he's under El, the God who oversees the earth. Now, when the Israelite people would show up and they would say, we've got a God whose name is El, it could be easy that you might think that, well, that's, that's our God too. We have El. And they would say El Baal. But the Jewish people would show up and go, no, 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 no. We, we don't have the God of earth. We have El El Yon, the God of earth and the God of heaven, because he's the God most high. If you've ever played baseball uh, and picked up in a playground, there's a way to figure out who picks up teams first. You get a baseball bat and you put your hand on top and keep going to the top. Whoever gets to the top, there's no more room at the top. You win. That's effectively what's happening in this term. When he says most high, the son of the most high, the son of El, he is saying there is no other God above this God. He is not endorsing that there are other gods. Understand that. What he's saying is in the common understanding in the Old Testament was that there were gods. He would assume the idea that people believe there's gods. And so he'd say, I'm not going to argue about that. I'm just going to say he's the greatest of all. I'm going to settle the argument. I'm going to go to the top of the bat. I win. Now, it's easy to say that, isn't it? I mean, any religion could say that. Any person could say that. You could say, well, Mary, just maybe she's contriving this. Well, we see that Jesus was great. We see that first ripple. It's clear she couldn't pull that off. But when he says he's the son of the most high, we actually see this as well. If you notice in John chapter 12, 39 through 43, In the middle of Jesus' ministry, there's an interaction that happens with the people. And Jesus is speaking in parables, and he's not giving them, he's not teaching them, because what they've done is they've taken the truths that he's given them, and they've dismissed him. So he begins to speak in parables. And in this passage, it says, this is foretold what Isaiah said. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Scary moment. They rejected what they heard. They rejected what they saw. So they don't get to hear or see anything more. I've run into people like that. Who've given, have been given all the truth necessary to believe. And they keep giving God the finger. And eventually they stop hearing. 
They stopped seeing. Scary moment. But then he says this in verse 41 of John 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. If you have an NIV, it says Jesus' glory. We've talked about this before. When did Isaiah see Jesus' glory? I mean, when did that happen? Isaiah lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was ever born. How is that even possible? Well, the quote there has blinded their eyes comes from Isaiah chapter 6. If you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, it's the most profound view of God in the Old Testament. The most profound view. You've got Sinai, but now you've got God in his temple. And Isaiah sees the Lord, sees him sitting in the temple. And the angels going around, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the temple tremble. John wants you to know that he's seeing Jesus. That's Jesus in the temple. That's Jesus who's exhibiting his his glory, his holiness, his power. It's overwhelming. He is the most high. Now, this is where Israel lost it. This is where Israel lost it. While they were willing to embrace that Jesus Christ was great, he was the megas, they don't recognize he's the most high. The closest they get is that he's a prophet. And they try to make him king by force. If you remember the story, after the feeding of the 5,000, they say, well, wouldn't this be a great guy to have as king? I mean, producing food, come on. You can't get better than that. And Jesus slips away from him. I'm not interested in being a prophet. I'm not interested to be the, the political king you're looking for. I'm the God most high who walks among you. And they missed it completely. So as Gabriel's saying this, he moves to his third statement. Look there, the third one. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. We've talked about this before. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11 through 13 talks about that after David would die, he says, I'll raise up an offspring after you in verse 12 who come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon came after, so we have that, but Solomon never fulfilled this. He's not talking solely of Solomon. He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Lord God will give to him the child Mary that you are going to give birth to not only will be great, he'll be Yeshua. He'll be great. Not only will he be the son of the most high, he will be the one who takes the throne of David. This is the third ripple. The rock goes in. The truth, the reality. Ripple one, ripple two, ripple three. Notice verse 33, the next thing. It's like this orchestra hitting these notes that's getting more and more profound, growing in volume, growing in significance, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Not just David. Out further from that, the house of Jacob was the idea of Israel. He will rule over Israel forever. Exodus 19, 3 and 4 talks about that the Lord called to him, Moses, 
out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. So when you're house of Jacob, it's just another word for Israel. Not only will he rule on the throne of David, but he will rule over Israel. And the final verse in verse 33 at the end, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. There'll be no point in which his kingdom ends. There is nothing that will act on his kingdom to say this far, no further. We don't have that in the world. There's always a time Babylon rises up, Babylon goes away. Assyria comes up, Egypt comes up, goes away. Rome comes up, goes away. America comes up, goes away. But it says this, and of his kingdom, there'll be no end. Imagine, you're in a nowhere place, Nazareth. You're an ordinary girl, 13, 14 years of age. And the messenger from God shows up and he tells you this. What are you thinking? It's one thing to think of the coming of Messiah. It's another thing to go, the Messiah is coming through me. When I was in Venezuela some years ago, I remember standing at the bottom of what's called Pico Bolivar which is a giant mountain in Venezuela, 6,332 feet. And I remember we're going up that thing. And as I stood at the bottom, I, the majesty of it, it's fantastic. It's this giant mountain peak. Oh, fantastic. And we had to take five tram cars to get to the base. And then we had to hike the rest of the way to get to the top. And says, we're going up this, you see the majesty of this. And you can look down on the valley as you're going up the tram. And then you, you get out progressively of each of the tram cars. And you, you can't really breathe like you used to breathe. Uh, air's getting thin. So the time we got off the last one that was a little under 16,000 feet. And we've got to hike over the top. You think, oh, this is going to be fantastic. Let me just take off here. Let me get to the top. You can't just take off. The atmosphere from where you were sitting at the bottom of the mountain is vastly different than when you're standing at the top. The view from the bottom is fantastic, but when you get to the top, the air is thin. There was, there was snow that was flying vertically up the face of one part of the mountain. You could stick your hand out and this 30 mile an hour wind would be going up over your hand and it's like betraying gravity. There's nothing like this ever. It's one thing to see it from the bottom. It's another thing to experience it from the top. It's, you can't just write about it. You experience it as glorious and you can't even put it into words. I have to think that that's what Mary's going through. Thought about a Messiah coming and all of a sudden I'm in the bullseye of what this is gonna, what this is gonna mean. Of his kingdom, there'll be no end. What is Mary's reaction? That brings us to the question from Mary, verse 34. You got to feel it building here. All of these things, these five ripples. Yeshua, he'll be great, son of the most high. The throne of David. His kingdom shall never end. And Mary has a question. She said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? I just think that's an amazing thing. I would think she would naturally want to say, 
you got the wrong person. I'm a nobody. This is no place. Jerusalem is a better place. There are much more godly people. She just thinks, I don't know how this is going to happen. It's not that she doesn't believe. That's amazing. She believes. She doesn't know the mechanics of how this is going to work. She says, I'm a virgin. And by the way, I'm engaged. I'm kind of taken. Notice the difference between Mary and Zechariah. If you look back in the previous passage in 5 through 17, and then you get to the port of verse 18, after he goes through, we've got the right person, Zechariah, priest. We've got the right place in the temple. We've got the right message from Gabriel. We've got the right hope. The spirit of Elijah is going to come. John the Baptist is going to be this baby who comes in filled with the Spirit of God from the very beginning, from birth, turning Israel back, making the way ready for the Lord, you have these five ripples. Very similar. This is what he's going to do throughout his life. And Zechariah, what does he say? How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Notice the difference between Mary and Zechariah. Mary goes, or Zechariah goes, I don't think it can happen because look at who we are. Mary says, I know it can happen. I just don't know how. Notice the difference there. I think that's very, very important because God is not scared of your questions. He is repelled by your understanding that he can't do something. There's a difference there. Just because you don't understand something, which is understandable, doesn't mean he can't do something. So if you approach God and you go, I don't know how this is going to work, but I know you're God. Oh, he loves that. But if you come to him and say, you can't do it, he doesn't like that at all. Because that's not faith. That's demeaning to him. And so when she has this question, she's not asking from doubt. She's asking from not understanding. And there's a big difference between the two. When she says this, immediately we have the response of Gabriel in 35 through 37. And again, it's just overwhelming. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Stop right there. Notice, as I said at the beginning, everything that Gabriel says is measured. He's saying what needs to be said. And when she says, how will this be? He doesn't say, that's not for you to understand. You wouldn't understand it if I told you. He doesn't say that. Notice how he condescends to Mary. He gives her everything he can say that she can understand so that she can have something to believe and trust in and understanding a fragment of the implications of what's going to happen to her. The grace is incredible. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. How else do you explain the virgin birth? How else do you explain what exactly? I'm just going to overshadow you. And the child will be born to you will be called holy. The Son of God. Everything necessary. Blowing her away. And verse 36, to give her even more, to encourage her to 
help the pieces come together to go, I'm a virgin. So how in the world is it going to happen? Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this in the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now remember, Elizabeth went into hiding for five months. So Mary doesn't know about any of this stuff. It's her cousin, but the word doesn't come to her. So Gabriel says, to help you understand this, someone who you never thought would have a child is pregnant. Isn't that, that's the kind of God that you serve that he runs ahead of her and go, the thing that you never thought would happen is going to happen, just like the thing you don't know how it will happen, a virgin give birth is going to happen in you. Verse 37. It's the glue that holds the whole interaction together. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Zechariah, you whiffed. You missed it. Adam and Eve whiffed. Moses whiffed. David whiffed. Great people. Trusted the Lord, but at one point they didn't. And this thing, nothing is impossible with God. God is going to do something that transcends your ability to believe. He is simply going to act on his unconditional covenant that he gave to Abraham and Mary. He's going to use you to do it. Nothing is impossible. Because he is God. He is the most high. Now notice in verse 38. The obedience of Mary. This is her response to that. Again, we're in Nazareth, a no place. An angel in a room with Mary. No one else around coming to the end of the conversation. The obedience of Mary. And Mary said, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It couldn't have gotten better. But notice what she says. I am a servant. Dule. It's the female from doulos, meaning slave. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this incredible? Notice the grandeur of this. Adam and Eve in the garden. They didn't want to stay as servants of God. They didn't want to stay as creatures. They wanted to be the creator. Disqualified. Moses, when God shows up in the burning bush, five different excuses. Eventually, God in his kindness grabs his heart and brings him down into Egypt. It's going to happen. But he resisted it. David, prophet, king, incredible, failed. Israel, what a dumpster fire in, in, in the wilderness. All the way, even Zechariah, priest, temple, everything's together. Oh, I don't think it can happen. Whiffs. Mary's obedient. Do you know why Mary's obedient? And this is the key for us today. She understood her role in relationship to God. I'm a slave. I'm a servant. You are who you are. And because you are that, and I believe that, my role is settled. My role is whatever you want me to do. That's it. Do you know where you and I lose it? We start thinking I deserve better. I'm not going to take that. God should do this for me. I did this for him. Oh, that's where we lose it. If we keep the posture that 
This is about God's glory doing something in you. God is working on that envy and that anger, and he's humbling you. He's putting you in circumstances in which you realize you need God because guess what? You're not God. That is beautiful. That is what I need. That is what you need. So as we said a couple weeks ago, if you're learning to build or you're wanting to build up your trust in the Lord, there's three components that always involved into trust. There's three aspects. If you want to build up your trust in the Lord, diagnose which one of these you're missing. The first would be, does God want to do a work in you? Does he have a priority? Does he want to spread his fame in your life? Absolutely. He's for, for his glory being reflected in you. He's not against you. Some of us get hung up in this, so our trust in the Lord can never grow because you think he's after you. So you need to see that he's for you. Or it could be that you think his character. Will he do this for me? Will he help me in my anger or my envy? Will he help me in that? Or is he just okay with me struggling for that for the rest of my life? Will he do this for me? If I humble myself before him, will he give me the courage in the lunchroom? Or in the cubicle at office? In the office, will he be with me really? Or it could be the ability the can do. Does God have the power to make change come true in my life? When you think about this, every one of us, when we trust somebody, these three compartments or these three components are involved. And when trust goes down, it's because one of these is either missing or minimized. So when it comes to us today, when we look at Mary, she understands the motivation, the priority. Messiah has been told that he's going to come understands the, the character of God, the character of the messenger that has come and what the Lord wants and believes the ability for God to do it. And the ability is where Zechariah missed it. The idea of the character is where Israel missed it of Christ. He's megas. He'll be great, but he's not the most high. This morning, if you're here struggling with your relationship to the Lord as the band is coming up, this information is given to you so that you can have certainty of the Savior, so that you can believe that Jesus Christ is who he is so that it can shape your life, that it can make a difference. And I've got to ask you this morning, I'd have to ask you, friend, what is holding you back if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? If you're not following Jesus Christ, you're following something. Everybody follows something. Everybody has a theology. Everybody worships something. It's just a matter of if you're worshiping the right thing. And the reality is, is all of humanity is going to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It starts in the announcement of Jesus Christ in his birth. And you either flow with that and find your enjoyment and joy in that, or one day it will run you over. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, be encouraged you're on the right track. Be encouraged that you have a good God that you follow. Be encouraged that he's doing a work in you so he can do a work through you so we can make disciples in this world to spread his fame. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for your kindness. Thank you for sweet moments of repentance that we have often daily because we 
see you so much less than you are. We minimize you. That's what the world does. It's constantly just trying to shrink you down. And as we spend time in your word, you elevate your character. You expand our understanding and we are overwhelmed at your goodness, at your greatness, at the grace that is provided in the example that we have in Mary in a no-name place with an unknown girl. And you brought hope to the world through that. So we are thankful that you could do that with us. Certainly not bring a Messiah, but you can bring hope into the a business we work in or a relationship that we have with a relative or maybe a relationship in a neighborhood or in a cafeteria or a classroom. From the moment you brought hope through Mary, you made hope possible for all of us. And now it comes through us in the message of who you are. Give us boldness, give us clarity, give us a passion and a burden to express that to the people in our world of who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.